This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. As you'll soon hear, my guest today is Becca Andrews, author of the new book, No Choice, The Destruction of Roe v. Wade and the Fight to Protect a Fundamental American Right. I want to note that this episode deals directly with abortion and other aspects of reproductive care. For people in my age cohort, older millennials and younger, who grew up in conservative white evangelicalism, abortion was and has been absolutely vilified, as were the people who needed them. This conversation starts there, and then looks at the history of reproductive care in the United States from the 19th century through today. I mentioned this near the end of my conversation with Becca, but I also want to mention it right here at the top. Her book tells the stories of people in need of reproductive health care, including abortion, with tenderness and compassion. They are told in their own context within the book. We do not appropriate them for this conversation. I highly recommend that you go out and purchase this book to read them for yourself. You can purchase her book and support the show by using the bookshop.org and Amazon links that you find in the show notes. You can also support the show with a subscription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post. You can do so for free or at four, six, or eight dollars a month at postevangelicalpost.com slash about. You will get access to ad-free podcast feeds and more with your subscription. You can also follow me on Twitter at BRChastain and on Instagram and TikTok at BRChastain underscore. All right, let's get into it. My guest today is Becca Andrews. Becca is a journalist at Reckon News and author of the new book, No Choice, The Destruction of Roe v. Wade and the Fight to Protect a Fundamental American Right. She's been reporting on reproductive rights and justice, as well as related topics such as purity culture for several years. And her work has also appeared in outlets such as Mother Jones, Jezebel, and Teen Vogue, among others. Becca, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. Your book is very powerful and I think will be a great entry into into sort of contributing to this conversation that we have. This show has a particular focus on white evangelicalism and personal stories, but its broader focus is really on how people change their minds, really. Uh, And the introduction to your book captures both of those things, because you start by saying how you were anti-abortion for 23 years due largely to your involvement in evangelicalism. And something eventually changed, but you start by how discussing this abstinence-only pro-life youth message at your church made the issue become thorny, in your words. And that 
that language, that imagery really stuck with me because when something's thorny, you know, you, you sort of approach it with more care or, or caution. So what was it about that message that made you reconsider the teachings of your church and eventually lead you to the, the type of work that you do now? Yeah, absolutely. So it's weird. Like I know that it doesn't really fit the trope of uh, what we encounter in evangelicalism, but um yeah, I I think that the point that that Sunday school teacher was trying to make was that the world is a lot more complicated than we would like for it to be, and mm-hmm. certainly more complicated than it is in, you know, sitting in the halls of a church. So in that scene, he's really pressing us to, to define ourselves as anti-abortion under all circumstances, but to really think through why that would be right. So in cases of, of rape and incest and the exceptions, and it seemed to me, and again, like memory is not perfect and mm-hmm. mine certainly isn't, but from my recollection, it, it certainly felt to me like everyone else in the room was able to kind of get there. And I just wasn't. And, and you know, I'm not sure that's a thing that anyone else in the room could have read mm-hmm. uh, or like been able to tell at that time. But I just remember it really bothering me, like feeling like, like it was one of the first times that I'd really considered that people get pregnant against their will and what it would actually mean to have to carry a pregnancy like that to term. And I was still very young. So so my understanding of pregnancy and reproduction was pretty rudimentary still. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I knew enough for it to be horrifying to me. And it just, I that that's the first like seed that I can remember of just kind of like, oh, wait, like this doesn't feel right to me as like a, as a moral, like ethical person. Like this doesn't fit my personal ethic. That's not the language that I had for it at the time, but but it, it was the first sort of like major disruption, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so before this, you were sort of, I mean, when we're young, we don't necessarily know how to, as you mentioned, like vocalize or verbalize our own sort of feelings we or opinions. Um, but your overall environment was was largely, was it largely sort of de facto evangelical what was the what was the sort of messaging beyond that beyond that particular lesson that contributed to this sort of uh, you know it's it's an environment they were both personally familiar with but but what what was what was it like for you individually there yeah absolutely so i i grew up in a small town in rural west tennessee here in the bible belt so you know everyone in my life that I had ever really been exposed to identified as Christian. And obviously like my whole family did as well does still. And so there, there wasn't really anything outside of that world to me growing up. Like that just was the entire world. I didn't, you know, we talk about the rural South, like it's extremely, extremely white. It's not like, certainly not my hometown. So I I think being in like a a part of the South that was maybe a little more diverse than what the media likes to pretend it is, 
maybe did help me like understand other people's circumstances from a younger age than than maybe I might have. But yeah, I mean, I think when you're like, I have these memories, I don't know about you, but I have these memories of like literally being on the playground at recess and like the kids (laughs) debating about like, if you can go to hell or if you're going to go to heaven if you don't go to church like i just i remember <laughs> that being like a big topic of conversation <laughs> and like looking back now i'm just like kind of fucked up like we're like little and we're talking about like big existential consequences here of like whether or not you go someplace on a particular day at a particular time of day like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I had those conversations. I don't know whether they were, whether they were on a, on a playground or not, but that, that's, that sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of the, I don't know, the, the atmosphere we were in, I guess the environment we were in. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember talking, I don't remember abortion coming up a whole lot at all. Like that, that conversation that that's in the book is the first time I can remember it coming up in a religious context Mm -hmm. and really at all. Like it's it's the first thing I have in my memory. And it was just one of those things that like you didn't talk about. So like to me, I, I don't even remember like when I got an awareness of abortion as, as a thing, but it just like was not discussed ever. And I'm not, I, I, I certainly, uh, I'm an elder millennial, so I'm in my late thirties and I, I grew up in similar circumstances where it wasn't really discussed, but the general, the general vibe that I picked up as a kid was that it was not really approved of or was not. Yes. Yeah. It was taboo. Mm-hmm. And that sort of gets to language itself being a barrier to having these discussions because of how effective political messaging has been at politicizing health. And a lot of that is just anyone sort of born after the rise of the religious right. That's just sort of their lived experience. So at the outset of our conversation, in your experience as a reporter who's been covering this this field for a while, what sort of framework should we have with regard to terms like, um, like the ones that people are familiar with, like pro-choice, pro-life, anti-abortion, forced birth, as well as other terms like reproductive rights, reproductive care, and reproductive justice, because I, because I feel like to have a have a really valuable conversation and to approach a book like yours, like your book does contextualize those things within the text itself. But w- just for the purposes of our conversation and being a sort of a sample of the type of thing that you cover in your book, what are some ways that we should try to approach some of those those terms and really what are the the ones that best actually suit the realities of reproductive rights and care in the United States today? Good question. I'm a writer and I write for the average person, right? So I'm a really big fan of just calling things what they are. So for me, you know, I'm quite happy to say the word abortion and I think that it's important to put that in the context of the fact that I have a lot of privilege to say the word. Like I'm a white woman who works in media and has sort of the power and the freedom to be able to say that and not 
feel any fear from it. I also haven't had an abortion and that's an important thing to discuss as well. So, you know, there are people that I've spoken to who had abortions who don't like the word abortion. And like, they want to say, one of the, one of the women in my book uses the word release, like a pregnancy release. And that's what feels right to her. And that's her truth and her story. And I think that that's really beautiful. I, I think that like, when I'm, when I'm talking about this stuff as a journalist, I have to like, say what I mean. So mm-hmm. abortion. And I think that also gets some of the discussion around like anti-choice or pro-life or anti-abortion or the, there are a lot of, you know, particularly like older white feminists who like to say things like, oh, well, nobody's pro-abortion. And there's been this movement in reproductive justice spaces to sort of push back on that and say like, no, actually, like we are pro-abortion because we're, we're pro having access to this healthcare and we're anti like the stigma that makes you want to say like nobody's pro-abortion you know like we don't have to say like oh nobody's pro uh appendectomy (laughs) it's like it's just like a completely different thing so you know why not just sort of go all in and, and claim that so there's that reproductive rights is a term that is a little bit more focused on abortion access in particular, so the right to abortion. Reproductive justice is a term that was coined by a group of Black women in the 90s because they felt like like their needs weren't being met by feminism and by the reproductive rights movement. And that was an extremely fair assessment. So if you just if you're just talking about abortion, then you're not talking about uh, prenatal care or neonatal care or, you know, the right to raise children that you want in a healthy environment. So it's looking at the full spectrum, right? Reproductive justice is about saying like, yes, I have the right to abortion. I also have the right to have children on my terms. I have the right to parent them in a safe and healthy way. I have the right to my own healthcare and clean water and nutritious food, education, all that good stuff. So when I often am am thinking about the stuff, I'm thinking about it from a reproductive justice framework, just because I think it encapsulates more and, and it just makes more sense in my head. Like, I don't think of abortion as something that needs to be pulled out of everything else to me. Like it's, it's part of everyday healthcare as part of reproductive healthcare. It's the same, it's on the same wheel as, you know, going to get birth control or, you know, STI or STD testing or cervical cancer or like whatever it is, right? So those are those are kind of an overview of the terms. And then the other thing that I'd like to say is that I think that we've done a disservice to, you know, or maybe our elders have done a disservice to our generation, yours and mine, by using euphemisms instead of really talking about sex, frankly, and and really talking about reproduction, frankly. So I, I think about this a lot. When I was like coming out of evangelicalism, there, I would have these conversations where like a girl who was in the, the college ministry that I was in would approach me and like, ask me questions about sex. And it was pretty like, they were pretty like 
basic questions like oh like this is because like in those circles which are like all encompassing like that's your entire life we don't talk about that and that's disempowering like that's that's I, I remember one conversation specifically where where the the girl approached me and she was like I don't really know how to think about this but this guy that I'm about to marry doesn't want me to be on birth control because he said that's abortion like it's like no those are two different things like nothing's wrong with abortion that's not what I said to her at the time, but that like, let's sit down and like go over the science of why that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then let's also maybe examine like why that's not a call that he gets to make or like whether or not that's a call that he gets to make just to not like push her into territory. That's like, she's going to be completely at odds with. Right. And then if that, any of that I... makes sense. I just babbled at you a lot. I'm no, sorry. That... No, that that does make sense. And I think it does connect to some of your other work that you've done on purity culture. And one of the things that you write in the book, I, I'm, I don't know how you feel about hearing quotes back to you, but one of the, to quote your book, you say abortion stigma does not just not just affect abortion, it leaks into all aspects of reproductive health care and education. And that's a very succinct way of, you know, of, of what you've just talked about. And it does play out in especially in evangelical circles through purity culture and all the things that contribute to that. So in in many ways that that's very much the the things that connect your different aspects of your journalism. Uh, the things you've done on purity culture as well as these things focused on abortion and reproductive justice. Yeah, it's all connected. I mean I see all of it as part of my beat. And for listeners of this show Many, if not most of them, have actually been brought up in some form of conservative evangelicalism, whether it's white evangelicalism or something else, and topics like reproductive rights or reproductive justice, as well as even the history of abortion, contraception, and other types of reproductive care have been, to your point, like completely sort of obscured and overlooked, not talked about. Your book actually provides an outlook on the history of many of these practices. So what are some of those, I mean, are there some examples that that you think would be worthwhile to highlight in, in the way that many of these things have been practiced throughout history? Not uh, You do talk and focus on sort of the professionalization of medicine as we get into the 19th and 20th centuries through to today, but but whichever you think might be helpful to highlight, just given sort of the the lack that folks who come from conservative evangelicalism have yeah so i think a a lot of times when in that specific context of like evangelicalism as certainly as i've experienced it anyway like abortion was always sort of talked about as like this relatively new evil like the world has continued in its decline and in its wrongness and here's abortion as like part of that but abortion, it's important to remember, has been around for as long as humans have. People have been seeking to control their reproductive lives always since the dawn of time. So, you know, which is important to think about when when you're trying to work through like abortion as something that's very normal, right? You know, we know that at least one in four women in the United States will have an abortion in their lifetimes. That's a lot of people. So, yeah, I mean, for the book, I got to look at um, ancient abortion practices and the ways that ancient civilizations regarded abortion 
you know, it, it wasn't always something that, that people were, you know, haphazardly like you get an abortion, you get an abortion, like the patriarchy bled into things certainly. And there, there was like regulation, but I don't think that things really took the turn that we see now until like what you were talking about with the 19th and 20th centuries with the professionalization of medicine. And that was an example of, or that was shaped by God, I need more coffee. Uh, and and your no, in your book, you actually you mention that it, the really the legislative framework doesn't enter the picture until the 19th century. Around 1821 was the first law, I believe, in Connecticut. Uh, it was a state law, and then then later, Comstock caused a lot of problems. <laughs> uh, right, just... and like what we have to remember about this stuff is that like this these were white men who were bringing these sorts of regulations in, right? So this wasn't coming from people who really understood what it meant to carry a pregnancy or understood the consequences of giving birth when they were not equipped to parent. So, you know, before that, abortion care had been part of midwifery, it had been part of community care. It had been practiced among enslaved women as a way of trying to to grasp it as much reproductive agency as they could possibly get under those like horrific, horrific circumstances. And then like suddenly you have like this group of white men who come in and A, realize that there is economic gain to be made in medicine. Uh, and so they push out all the midwives and criminalize midwifery and community care. And B, it's it's another thing to control. And I, I think that that sounds oversimplified, but it's not. I think there's something very human about wanting control, and we see that throughout history. So, you know, people want power, people crave power, and this is a way that that sort of shapes the course of reproductive rights. And that is a through line throughout the book as far as how class and race have always been an aspect of which of which women and people that have had access to abortion here in the United States in particular you write that we cannot consider again this is a quote uh, we cannot consider ways women have worked to harness their own reproductive power without exploring the ways that 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 power has been wielded against them particularly for black and brown women this was certainly a through line both before Roe, through the period of Roe, and now today, uh, after the downfall of Roe, after the Dobbs decision. Could you elaborate on some of the ways that that those realities made this access unequal throughout American history? Yeah, I mean, there have been massive healthcare disparities in this country for a very long time since mm-hmm. white people sort of came in and you know, casually committed mass genocide and all of that good stuff. I don't mean to be so glib about that. It's just, it's horrifying. And I don't know how to talk about it with the proper amount of horror, I guess, if that makes sense. You know, th- this is a really sort of broad prompt that I gave you. So I was trying to build on what we were, what I think 
was a spot that we were that we were sort of talking on and segueing into whichever direction you would really like to go about how class and race beginning especially like when we look at the period in your book that you examine after it starts to be legislated how those factors of both class and race affected access to abortion because the reality is is that yes they try to moralize it but whenever someone of means needs access they they find a way to get it and that's what those disparities are some of the things that you focus on in your book so however you want to provide an example of that so after the Roe v Wade ruling that made abortion legal in the United States that was 1973 Not too long after that, we had the Hyde Amendment proposed in Congress. What the Hyde Amendment did was it made it illegal to use federal funding, public funding for abortion. That, of course, did not affect wealthy white women. It affected lower class folks. It it affected people of color who are already disempowered and disenfranchised in this country because the United States is built on white supremacist ideals, which means that black and brown people in particular struggle to gain economic equality, right? So they're Mm. already in this position where they have less for a reason that doesn't make any sense at all. So when, when the Hyde Amendment comes in, because reproductive rights was kind of led by upper middle class white women, they didn't really take the time to take that threat seriously. They were like, oh no, like we, we've won Roe v. Wade. It's the law of the land. This is over. It's fine. Well, famous last words. Henry Hyde comes in, the Hyde moment passes. Not long after that, Rosie Jimenez dies when she cannot access abortion care. And I think that was the first really concrete example that we had of someone dying after Roe because they couldn't access care when they could have accessed it had federal funding been available for that, right? Mm -hmm. So from that point, lawmakers have figured out that it is easiest to regulate abortion against for the people who are most vulnerable in this country, right? So when someone is trying to get an abortion in a state that has heavily regulated abortion and legislated it just like to the nth degree, there are barriers to be overcome. And the barriers add up more quickly for people who are disempowered. So think about, for example, waiting period. A waiting period is a really common abortion regulation. What happens is you go in for your first appointment and they do the ultrasound and talk to you about abortion and all that preliminary stuff. And then the state tells you that you have to wait 24, 48, 72 hours, however long the state dictates before you can actually have that abortion. So that means two trips to a clinic. So if we're talking about someone who doesn't live in that metropolitan area, because let's face it, there aren't really abortion providers in rural America, that means they're going to have to go back home, do whatever they need to do 
for childcare, whatever they did to be able to get to the first appointment to begin with all over again, potentially lose another day's wages. All of these things add up very quickly and they add up very quickly for the people who have the fewest resources, the fewest resources for childcare, the, the lowest wages, all of that people who, who don't have access to a city who like live outside of a city. So obviously that disproportionately falls on black and brown folks in this country and has for decades. And this is why we see uh, historically the development of the, the types of organizations that you mentioned earlier in our conversation and within your book, such as sister song who created, who coined the term reproductive justice. Could you elaborate on some of the ways in which many of these organizations focus on those people that the state has tried has tried to and effectively tried to restrict access to reproductive care what up to and including abortion as well as other aspects of reproductive care for those who need yeah yeah absolutely god bless abortion funds forever and ever and ever they're doing the work and have been for so long a lot of the grassroots funds are led by women of color, queer people of color. And you sort of, you see that reflected in the book as well. And the power in that is that they're leaders coming from communities that they're serving, right? So they know how to meet their community's needs. They know that it's not just about abortion access. It's about clean water and it's about diapers and car seats and, you know, food and a whole host of other things. And I think a a really great example of this is Lori Bertram Roberts, who heads the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund in Jackson. She, you know, during Jackson's water crisis, she's been doing a lot of organizing to make sure people get clean water. You know, so it's not it's not always just abortion care that these folks are focused on because they know that reproductive justice encapsulates so much more than that. They also, I mean, Indigenous Women Rising is another one that I have a lot of respect for. They serve Indigenous folks who are trying to get reproductive care. They also have a lot of really cool sex education programs. And, you know, I think the power in their work is that like they're coming from the same place of trauma that the people they're serving are. So they're like, it's this cultural thing that everyone can kind of come together and address as one. Right. And I think that's really beautiful. Like I, as a white woman have no business going into a space like that and being like, I'm going to help you get an abortion. Like, Like I can't speak to those experiences that doesn't make me a bad person, but I'm just not equipped for that. And it's, mm-hmm. I think it's such a beautiful thing to be able to take care of one's community. And I, I think that's something actually from growing up in a church and growing up in a small town that I kind of miss, honestly. Like that was the, the thing where you like take care of your own and someone dies and you take them a casserole. And now mm-hmm. I'm totally going off on a tangent, but. I see that kind of, it's the same kind of care that I see reflected in abortion funds. And I, I think it's really beautiful. One of one of the things that on that topic of care, 
throughout your book, you focus on a number of different organizations prior to Roe that did assist women in need uh, of abortions or other types of service that were stigmatized. Uh, you focus on several uh, several organizations, um, Jane in Chicago, and the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion and Problem Pregnancies, uh, which was in more of the Northeast. And uh, I, I think it would surprise a number of listeners, the especially the, the clergy, the clergy involvement in some of these spaces. Specific to this particular audience, what what about your own sort of investigation and research into this has been surprising given the very, you know, very anti-sex, anti anti-women's rights, like so many elements of, of evangelicalism are stacked against this type of being open or being frank or even offering care to those who need it. What were some things that were surprising about people that brought a faith-oriented lens to this work? I love this question. Yeah, I think something that I have really gotten to absorb over the past decade or so of my life is that evangelicalism does not equal Christianity, does not equal like faith writ large, right? So I loved I loved getting to dig into this history because it is in some ways at odds with what I grew up with, but in more ways, it's very much aligned with it. It's very aligned with um, the good things about religion and faith and the things that still appeal to me from like a moral perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so the clergy consultation service, for example, like their whole mission was to serve people, right? It, it was to to help people, help people who really needed it. And that's a key tenet of Christianity, right? So they really saw themselves as, you know, stepping in and caring for the least of these, caring for people who really desperately needed that. And they saw that as a mission from God. That's really powerful to me, especially with the background that I have. And actually, I wonder how that resonated with you too. Uh, yeah, I would, I would say similarly. So to sort of, to sort of learn about those things because they were not things that I was aware of. I mean, just to, I grew up like United Methodist, small town United Methodist, which is, tends to be more conservative than big city United Methodist. Uh, and I went to Indiana Wesley and I, I was, I had a class on that was based on whatever happened to the human race, the co-written book from Francis Schaefer and C. Everett Koop. And, you know, had, it was very much a sort of anti-choice type environment. And then it wasn't until, you know, many years later, I, I took a grad school course that I was taught by a sociologist named Nicola Beisel. And she focused on, she was actually a Comstock scholar. And then she mm-hmm. assigned books like Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood and and other books about, you know, morality politics. And it wasn't until tech, you know, like articles like yours and by Jillian Frank and some other folks that really surfaced these stories. And it was, it, it was encouraging to see that, like, that there was that level of sort of compassion <laughs> because that is, yeah. 
that's what that you, that's what's lacking in the messaging you receive in a very quote pro-life environment like it's all it's there's no compassion no it's all judgment based mm-hmm. and so to see ministers involved in in helping in a way that you know they they weren't doing the procedures but they were connecting people that needed something vital yeah it, it, it's definitely challenging you know and but also in a way like even if you don't participate in a faith space anymore there's there's something that's encouraging about knowing that there are others who find a way for that to motivate them towards compassion yeah i also just like i think about all the like so when i was in college i was in the crew in campus crusade for christ mm-hmm. and i just like i like to think about what it would have been like being in crew and and having those meetings and and having like the big conference every year and what it would have been like for someone to bust up in there and be like, have you heard of the clergy consultation service for problem? Like it would have completely blown my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, I think even then it would have made some amount of sense to me in the way that, that reading and, and really researching this organization, it was just, I don't know. It was like something clicked. It was like, oh, like this makes perfect sense, actually. Like it makes perfect sense to serve people in this way and really meet them where they're at and really address their needs instead of just trying to pray it away, I guess. I really, yeah, I found my research into the the CCS to be a lot of fun. And I mean, that's a theme that continues throughout the book. A lot of people who work in abortion rights spaces are people of faith that are doing this because they feel like it is a mission for them. They feel like God has called them to this work. And for someone like me who grew up the way that I did, like that's completely radical and I can't get enough of it. And do you think that in- informs your your journalistic sort of approach to this? Because the way it, the way it comes across on the page is that you tend to the stories of people who sought abortions or needed care in some other way with with a lot of compassion and tenderness because each story each anecdote is very affecting and individual to that person and i the the thing about your book and so many others and is that knowing and hearing these stories complicates the sort of simple political and theological narratives that happen so like is it does your how much does your background inform that and does that make you sort of have hopes or desires for the way other journalists or storytellers steward these types of stories yeah i think so i mean i i think so i don't you know if someone asked me what my religious beliefs are i'm not totally sure what i would tell them frankly i'm one of those it's totally fair they're totally like, as I've said before, like they're totally parts of Christianity that still really resonate with me in a, in a mm-hmm. powerful way. And I think I do still carry a lot of that with me. I do see my work as a journalist and as a storyteller to be based in a lot of care and a lot of empathy. And I do try to really bring that to my reporting. I am, I don't think I'm ever going to be the kind of journalist who can just like, 
I don't know, do like the hardcore political stuff and, you know, like nailing people to a wall or any, but like anything like that. Like I, this is, this is more my speed, like getting to sit down with someone and being like, you know, tell me your story. I want to understand it. And that's what I got into journalism to do. And I got into journalism while I was still Christian. So I think it, it does still come from that place and I do still see it as a sort of act of I don't know for me it's it's an act of love and I hope that doesn't come off as like saviorish because that's not the way that I think about it but it's I, I don't yeah. know like I don't think I'd still be in it and still be doing it if it was anything less than that yeah I I see I, I think I see what you mean in that I mean much of the language that that we that that we sort of absorbed early on is about love and about calling your vocation. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I think that I, I, I follow what you're saying, which is that, that that's what motivates you. And yeah. This there's so many different directions. And one thing that I've, I've sort of been, you know, I, that I appreciated about your book is the way that it, it does highlight people's stories. And even though, even though our conversation, and I think this is actually appropriate, like our conversation isn't using their stories or appropriating them. They're, they fit within the context of the book, but they don't fit within the context of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Bearing that in mind, the the one the one thing about about this aspect of life is that there are all sorts of individual, very singular reasons why this care is needed and now we're in an a legal environment where Rose been, has been defeated and there's a lot of uncertainty day to day especially given where you, where someone lives and in your role as as a journalist in in communication with activists are there some are there some reputable reputable sources even for information with regard to whether it's access or just the state of legalization in particular places that you would recommend people reference and and that honestly that that like this is this is a podcast i'm not it's not an abortion fund it's not you know i'm not what i'm able to do though is maybe pass on a little bit of information and some perspective so are there are there different sites or or places with authority that can that we could reference either in the show notes and in our conversation here in case someone needs to explore options Yes, absolutely. So just for like data and sort of the most up-to-date legal landscape, I rely pretty heavily on Guttmacher Institute. They just have like some of the best research out there. If if I were an abortion seeker, I would go to a website called INeedAna.com. And that sort of also helps you helps you navigate what your options are based on where you live. Plan C pills also will help folks find options for medication abortion should they choose to self-manage, which is a safe option. And um, I'm trying to think what I'm missing. And then, you know, abortion funds are a great way to to try and figure out, although they may be a little more limited legally and what they can and can't say based on where in the United States they are. They do a lot of really incredible work helping people 
access financial resources for being able to to travel to get an abortion or, or whatever that need kind of looks like. Well, Becca, your your book your your book is very effective and and powerful at at summarizing the history that led to this moment. It's very it's very sensitive with with the stories that that you shepherd and include in the book and I'm very glad that it's out there uh and will be available for for those uh for people to read and for it to contribute to the sort of broader conversations that that books books enable where can people find the book where can they find you online anything else you'd like to mention here sure yeah you can find it anywhere you can request it at your library, which I really love because I love libraries. You can find it on bookshop.org, which supports indie bookstores, which is another really important thing to me. You can also find it on Amazon. That's totally an option. I don't judge. And then you can find me mostly on Twitter at Andrews, where I babble a lot, hopefully slightly more coherently than I have <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for bearing with me i yeah it's, um, it's been this, a wild this, ride lately <laughs> this has been great and I'm, I'm absolutely sure it has i'm excited for, for people to hear our conversation and get a chance to pick up the book becca thank you very much for joining me today